Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, and, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows in the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Virginia. Well, welcome again, and I'm grateful to be able to preach to you this morning and teach from this passage, um, and as I often get to, and uh, <clears throat> before I, long before I even moved to Nashville, I don't know if I've talked about this with many of y'all, but I was a youth minister for several years in Texas, a couple different churches, and uh, as I was uh, there, um, both in a couple different kinds of, of ministries, uh, one of them, I had a student who was just amazing. He was uh, brilliant, uh, you know, one of those guys that doors were always opening for him. And uh, uh, he was taking exams. And uh, I remember this story, thinking, I can't believe this is this guy. Very smart, uh, very accomplished, uh, very um, athletic, uh, handsome uh, and yet, during exams, he was just found himself exhausted. Lived nearby a 24-hour uh, a fitness. So he decided he's going to go work out. He's, you know, it's kind of late at night. It's like, man, I got to wake up a little bit. So he goes to this 24-hour fitness, and he jumps on the treadmill. And he begins running. And in his brilliance, he begins to think, you know what? I'm also really tired what am I doing? And he, he all of a sudden has the idea of instead of, you know, I need to get off and maybe go take a nap. He says, what if I, what if I was able to take a nap while I kept running? And so he begins to run and then starting to like close his eyes a little bit, just close them open, close them. And all of a sudden he wakes up and he finds himself with his legs kind of turned over him and the treadmill skidding on part of his body going and these people standing over him, looking at him like, what is wrong with you? And he realizes, I can't exactly fall asleep and run at the same time. <laughs> Doesn't work, real bright guy. Um, but I'll tell you, that illustration, every time I think of this, this passage you just heard is actually considered the treadmill passage. It actually is considered that exact illustration I gave you. This passage, if you read it, you're like, gosh, that's real encouraging for the day. Um, 
you know, especially if you're visiting here this morning, you're like, wow, okay. Um, but it is considered that because this passage is, is trying to give us an awareness of the reality we live in. Ecclesiastes by some and many uh, commentators have called it the black sheep book of the Bible. It's a book that often really can leave one after you read it in somewhat cynicism, kind of feeling a little bit like, where do I go from here? <laughs> you know, when the preacher says, all things are full of weariness, it's easy, and as many had said, that this book can drive us to fatalism or determinism or, or just kind of, oh, just complete cynical life. But it actually isn't supposed to do that. It's supposed to show us the treadmill that we're on so that we can be aware that there's more than being under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is an interesting one. It was used by a lot of cultures. It wasn't a new phrase in this passage. Under the sun was used in the Phoenician, Elamite cultures to talk about what was under the sun, exactly what it means. We toil, we labor, we work under the sun. And the problem is, in that treadmill of life, we're trying to ascribe meaning to things that can't hold it, things that cannot hold substance or weight. And, and, and instead of being wise and stepping off the treadmill to think about what we really need to be doing, what we really need to be thinking about, we just go and go. And maybe we can do both. Maybe we can fall asleep on the, maybe we can find rest on the treadmill, right? That's actually what we try and do. How do we find rest while we're running a hundred million miles an hour? And this passage is saying there's no way to do that. In fact, we all find ourselves, if you continue down that passage, we will all find ourselves on the edge of it, legs over our head, people looking around us going, are you okay? Let's go back again. <laughs> but that's, the, that's the, the point of this. It's interesting, I read a blog from an MIT student, and I think summed this weariness phrase up really well. Listen to what this, this student said. There's a feeling that no matter how hard you work, you can always be better. And as long as you can be better, you're not good enough. There's something to, to giving everything and always falling short. Eventually, we'll walk out with a deep understanding of our fields, a fantastic tolerance for failure and late nights and raised expectations for ourselves and for humankind. Someday we'll look back on these four years as the best years of our lives and the foundations of the kinds of friendships that can only be formed with some suffering. But right now, sometimes it feels like MIT drags your self-esteem over a jagged, gravely rock face and stretches your happiness, your mental health, and the passion and energy that brought you here like an old rubber band. And I would hasten to say that that, as I talk to people, not just in university settings, but all of us that are not, and many of you in this room that are in university settings, that feeling of, of being stretched like an old rubber band, is that not the weariness? That is the language of weariness. It is that stretching thin. It is what Bilbo Baggins said beautifully in The Lord of the Rings, if I can nerd out for a second, when he says it's like he's too much Little, too little butter scraped over too much bread. He's just not enough. It's feeling thin. And Ecclesiastes is interesting because different than any other book of wisdom, instead of talking about wisdom like Proverbs and giving us little things, instead, it's, it's actually, instead of reading the book, it's like sitting with the author. 
It's like when I was able to hear uh, an audio book by Steve Martin uh, called Born Standing Up. It's his, uh, his uh, biography of a sort. And he, he actually reads the audio book. He reads his own book, which is fun. So you actually get to hear him read it. And to hear him read it rather than me sitting with the book, reading it, or even hearing someone else read it is so fascinating because you actually hear the drawn out experiences, the passion, the intonation when there are certain experiences in his life. That is Ecclesiastes as opposed to Proverbs. It is like sitting with the author and hearing him tell you about it. And for us to, and to, to be connected to someone who has an experience like ours, like feeling like an old rubber band stretched out. So there are three things that I think the preacher, as he calls himself, the preacher calls us to see in this passage. And the first one is nothing accomplished. And the second is nothing new. And the third one is nothing remembered. <laughs> really encouraging points from the preacher. Nothing accomplished, nothing new, and nothing remembered. You know, when he begins this passage, when we looked at verses one and two last week, it says, vanity of vanities, as the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then he says in verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, that phrase is all throughout Ecclesiastes, trying to say, what are we trying to gain under that? And the words toil and gain are actually commercial phrases, they're commercial phrases through the profit that we're trying to make, not just work-wise and money, but the physical labor, what we put ourselves to is trying to draw out, what are you doing? What, what do you, what do you, where do you stake your flag and say, this is what I'm gonna make my life about. This is what I'm gonna work everything for. What is that thing in you? What is that thing in your life that you center everything around? It could be anything, really, and that's why I think it's so beautiful that it doesn't just specifically go, but what do you put your blood, sweat, and tears towards? All of us have that. It could be a job, but it could be a family. It could be a child. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a city. It could be a, a cause. It could be a lot of things, but what is it that you identify that in? And there's an interesting way that he says, let me tell you what this is like. He goes immediately in verse four, he says, generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He begins then, right then to say, all that you accomplish, all that you toil, all that you do under the sun is in a generation that comes and goes. As the earth stays, as the earth continues on, it goes. I remember visiting, my dad is from a really small town in East Texas. And uh, he was born in Troop, Texas. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And it's not even spelled like you think. It has a U in it. Troop, Texas. That's what East Texans are like. So my dad, my, I love my dad. He always talks about, you know, how's Nashville? You know, how's Upper, upper East Texas doing? You know, he refers to Tennessee and all that. That's true Texan for you, right? Uh, but I remember him taking me back to, he grew up on an oil field. And I remember uh, we decided one time, I said, I really want to see where you grew up. And uh, his father was a part of the oil business, my grandfather, and, um, <clears throat> and we drove out to this place where his home was at one point. And all that remained was fascinating were these just low to the ground walls that looked like eroded completely. And we drove down this dirt road and there were no homes. It was just these eroded walls, maybe six inches off the ground. 
And you could see even in the, my dad's an architect, even in the architecture that they used old sucker rods that, they, that if, you're, if you know anything about how they, they drill for oil, they used the sucker rods to draw the oil. And they actually used those to construct these homes. And he was telling me all these things. And we walked into a little somewhat frame on the ground of concrete and sucker rods and walked into it and he said, this was my room and there's nothing there. It's like a square, you could kind of see a square outlined on the ground and where there was just only grass and around it, these eroded walls. Isn't that the interesting picture that what is being told us here is that as we build, as we're a part of this, the generations come and go and yet the earth is in this cycle and it continues. Creation around us continues. There's grass. What was once homes and buildings and a, a community is nothing but now six inches tall of, of eroded wall and exposed sucker rods and beams. And, it, and soon, one day, I'm sure even now, maybe it looks less than that because it continues. The, the generations come and go. It's fascinating to see that. And even more so, what, what, the, what the preacher's wanting us to see is the three illustrations of this. When he talks about the sun, the wind, and the streams, he says, the sun rises and sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around the north, and around, <clears throat> and, around and around goes the wind. And on its circus, the wind, uh, circuits, the wind returns, and all streams run to the sea, but to, the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. There is this idea, and even the language hastens, that even creation itself is in this endless, monotonous cycle. That over and over, that the sun, and the language hastens is, is one I identify very easily. It's the word to pant. It is like someone breathless after running on a track. And, it, and it is the sun continually is racing across the sky on this track only to do it again. The wind from south to north, north to south is on its track doing it again. The waters, rivers flowing to the sea, ever flowing, right? And yet the sea, we don't see it rise and fall. It's this endless, unsatisfactory work. The language hastening of this track is, is exactly that feeling that we have of constantly putting in, constantly working. And are we going to accomplish something? Are we gonna see something for our work when we say we're gonna stick our flag here and this is what I'm gonna be known for and this is my accomplishments? Am I accomplished in this? Does it last? And doesn't it cause us exhaustion? When I ran track, I remember running and every Monday was what was called endless, uh, they called them infinite 200s. That's what our coaches called them, infinite 200s. It's the language that the preacher is using about hastening about this track. And they would set cones around this track. And every time you would hit a cone, you needed to, the buzzer would go off. And that, that would pace you. So we do like, you know, 15 200s at a certain time limit. And every time you were at a buzzer, you, you should have been at a cone. And it would keep you on pace. And I still honestly, to this day, remember the sound of that buzz. It was awful, terrible. It's like, oh. And you'd either see the cone in front of you, which then you really felt like, please don't buzz. Or you, saw the, you felt like you passed it and you're like, I'm ahead, but only for a moment. And every Monday when you finished, 
you always thought about Monday again. Our whole team would say, we did, we, uh, we made it through only to go, Monday comes next week. That is the same track that the creation is on. That is the same track that we can feel exhausted in our moments. That is, it seems like there's nothing accomplished. Have we finished it? Maybe I've gained a step, but only to next week, let's turn the buzzer up a little faster. Where am I going? Around and around and around. This is why many of you are like, I hated track growing up. But that's the feeling. That's what it's like. That's what the... The preacher wants us to see. But here's the question, though. What are we awaiting? What are we wanting? What do we really see accomplished? See, the bondage of endless monotony is pointing to something. There's a longing, a breaking from it, a freedom outside of it. It's something that we really, really want. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in the, his letter to Romans. In Romans chapter eight, and I referenced it last week because what he's doing is he's, he's, he's bringing us Ecclesiastes into the New Testament. He's saying there's futility, but it's awaiting freedom. It's awaiting that there's hope in our toil to get above the sun, to feel like we can fly. Isn't that the whole story of Icarus flying too close to the sun, his wings melt and he falls, but, it, but isn't that what we long for is to fly up, up even above it? so that our accomplishments can last. How is that so? There has to be more to that. N.T. Wright said it this way. I love how he put it. He put it in terms, and we will see this in a few weeks, about the resurrection. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? He said, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not, is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory over them. Take away Easter and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is a wish fulfillment. Take the resurrection away and Nietzsche was probably right to say it was for wimps. Our hope has to be something more. There has to be a reality that rises above that has an, a finished accomplishment in it. But he labors on. The preacher says, if you find your hope in your accomplishment, you're gonna be left wanting. If you find your hope in something new, you will as well, that there's nothing new. He starts in verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We're left unsatisfied. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? I mean, talk about a perfect illustration for, for living in Music City, that our ear is never satisfied. I, I, I know talking to many of you that are musicians, even in this room, one of the hardest places to play is Nashville, because you feel as though when you play a concert here, people stand like this because they've heard so much music. Is my music, what, what, what are they receiving? <laughs> That the ear is never satisfied. The eye can never take in enough. 
There's this weariness of the new, wanting something more. I can't imagine being in this city, especially being a songwriter or being in construction or being in a city that's constantly bustling of the new. I mean, even looking for homes. Some of you are looking for new homes with a real estate market and everything that's going on in this city. The new, there's always something new. But this passage is talking about this, not just that the new is like technology or a new home or a new song, because it's saying there's nothing new. Even here in verse 10, it says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. We all want to have something new. We all want to create something new. We all want to be a part of something new that is shiny. Isn't that what we love? I mean, I love even the play and the commercials for us, for iPhones or whatever it may be. It's always, we want something new. If we get the new version of this, right? If we have that, then we feel as though we have some sort of meaning, substance. It's not vapor, as he says. It's not vanity. Maybe if I have something new, it gives me a moment, doesn't it? It gives you a quick moment. I know it does me. Like if I get something new, if I have something new in my life, in my hands, something I look forward to, a new vacation, a new spot. Maybe you write a new song. Maybe you have a new thing in your job that you're like, I just thought of this. This is going to revolutionize the way we, we are in production. Maybe there's something new in your family, a new child, a new car, a new house, a new life that you're putting together. May all those things they do, don't they, for a moment, give us a sense of groundedness in this world. And they do have some meaning, but what we tend to do is lean on that, put our whole weight on that, put our substance and meaning into that. Instead of realizing the new fades and it wears away. See, what it's actually saying here is that nothing's new. It's not just the new things we get. It's saying, look, everything's, technology is gonna continue to change. We're gonna have an iPhone, like, they're gonna start using Roman numerals like the Super Bowl for the iPhone. Like, it's gonna be continued, like we're gonna have those. It's gonna be awesome, you'll have the next one. Like, you're gonna have all that stuff. Technology's gonna progress. Our social life, everything is being made easier. But if you thought about this, this is what the preacher's saying. I'm not talking about technology. The preacher's saying, I'm talking about the fundamental parts of your life. You live, you struggle. You have relationships, suffering, death. All the fundamental things, no matter what changes to make life easier or more transparent or connected or not connected, we have all these articles that say, say all the same things, right? We still are all the same fundamentally struggling with how do we make sense of life, viewing down the tunnel that there is death. We're all there, that nothing new the bondage of new things under the sun? Or are we looking for something made new? There's, there's actually two different kinds of words in the Bible for what is made new. It's interesting. One of those words means new in terms of duration. But the other word, kainos, is a word that's used more in the New Testament and in Greek and the Old to say there's gotta be something made new. Not just something new that you make, but something made new, meaning that God makes new. 
that there's a freshness, a strength. In fact, kainos is, is a word that means new, continually making new. It means that what we're doing in here, and perhaps you're in this room maybe visiting for the first time, maybe you're back in church, maybe you're a little cynical, maybe this book makes you cynical, and you're going, where is hope in that? It's the hope that if we put our hope in new things, we're missing the point. Yes, they can be great things to enjoy, that's not it. But what we do is look at those new things to make sense of new, to give us some sort of groundedness in this world. But God uses a different word to say, the only hope you can have in terms of looking and enjoying even the things that you have that are new in this world is if you understand the one who will make all things new. The one who's going to transform things around you to enjoy, to love, and live in. It's a different kind. It's actually a word of quality. Things that we typically think are quality, they always break down, don't they? We just got a new laptop. For, uh, for, to run our AV system, right? Just got a brand new laptop. It's totally changed. Now you can't even plug in certain things on the side of it. It's great. Why do we have to get a new laptop to run our AV system? Because the old one doesn't work. And it, aren't they supposed to run forever? Isn't that just the law, second law of thermo, thermodynamics? That things are breaking down? And yet, what are we, how, what are we longing for? We, long, we have to know, we know internally that there's something new, that there's something we need. There's a, and we even think about that in terms of ministry, this having a big splash. Maybe, look, and if you meet with me, you'll hear this. I've talked to some of you about this, that what's, tell me about CPC in town. And I'll, I'll often tell you, I'm not trying to do something cool. Like we're not trying to like outdo other churches around us. In fact, quite the opposite. We're not trying to be somebody that's like, hey, come to our church because we do this and they don't. Like, what am I doing with that? It's not just competition. I'm trying to prove myself new. That's not the point. It's about ministry in the mundane. And I love this, this former campus minister who wrote this passage called Ministry in the Mundane. Instead of trying to make this big splash, he talks about instead of trying to, to take a campus or a city or, or a place by storm, he says this, the ministry of presence doesn't sell well. It's a hard, little hard to measure. We're not even sure what it looks like ourselves. It requires dogged obedience and robust prayer. But this is what it means to know God. When we think about evangelism, discipleship, all those things, we should think about meeting people where they live in the business at hand. There we will find great struggles and messes, and there we will see transforming graces of Christ. Many Christians will never notice or recognize this as ministry because it makes so little noise. God brings extraordinary things out of the ordinary. We are so bent towards the new. Are we looking at just what is right next to us? Are we, are we thinking about the everyday? This is why I made such a big deal about even our confession this morning because what is in your hearts is the real thing. And many of you, all of you have a story. Some of you I know better than others. But there's something in you that's grasping, that wants to be made new. And yet what we do is grab for new things. Maybe it is a new relationship. Maybe it is a new marriage. Maybe it is a new job. Maybe it is that new house, vacation, whatever it may be that's gonna actually placate what I really need. 
But that's what the preacher is trying to get at. There is nothing new that you can grasp that's going to fill that, that's going to supply that. And if that's not enough, he finishes with this very verse. Nothing is remembered. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is gonna sound so sad, but in a hundred years, Lord willing, CPC, unless Jesus comes back, CPC in town will look completely different. Everybody in this room will look different. It'll be different faces. How do we take that in? It's like me trying to explain to my son Jake about who Michael Jordan is. Many in this room are like, Michael Jordan, he's like the best basketball. And then some are like, wait, no, who is this? You mean the guy that like is on commercials for Hanes? No, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to explain to my son Jake, dude, he was incredible. He was, had the flu in a game and he won the whole game for, I mean, and he's like, yeah, that's great. I don't know who, tell me about him again. You know, like I've been, I was a campus minister at Vanderbilt for 10 years. I've been gone for over two and it's so interesting. I got to speak there. Some of you in this room, I, I got to meet and speak. But it's so interesting to me to go there. And, nobody, and if somebody, it was amazing for even a couple students that remembered me. I was like, oh wow, you actually remember me? I mean, that's two years removed. Two years. They don't know me. They don't know what happened when I was there. They don't know how many students were there, the other students were there, or what we did, or events, or what I taught on, or anything like that. Talk about a sober thing, is to walk into that room where I spoke for 10 years, straight down the street in that chapel, and knowing hardly anyone. And they don't know me. How do we know that we'll be remembered? Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we want? We want our name to be held. We want our name to be remembered. There's a great passage that I think sums this up in Revelation chapter three. It's a famous passage about a church called Sardis. And it says this, it says, in the angel of the Lord, angel of the church in Sardis writes, the word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found in your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This was a city and a church in a city that was surrounded by cliffs on three sides. In fact, it was a lot like that scene from uh, Princess Bride, like inconceivable. Remember, like they couldn't climb the cliffs, the cliffs of insanity. If you haven't seen that movie, you gotta see it. Perfect illustration. No one could see. Sardis was so protected that, that, that even the word like, oh, like Sardis. They would use that. Like if pigs could fly, if people talked about sacking Sardis, they go, yeah, like taking over Sardis. The, the king of Sardis was so rich 
His name was Croesus. They said, uh, are you as rich as Croesus? It was like a joke. Their wealth, their security, their power made such a name for themselves that they were asleep. And what he's trying to tell them is, wake up or I will come like a thief in a night. And what happened historically to Sardis is the enemy once saw um, one of the guards' helmets fall down the cliffs. And as they went to retrieve it, they realized we can scale those cliffs. And Sardis was sacked. And historically, even here, what he's trying to say to them is, don't make a name for yourself that you think you're gonna have recognition that's gonna numb you to sleep, that's gonna make you think you're okay, but you're not. And where does he go? He says, the only place that you can find a name for yourself is in me. He says, look, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That is Jesus saying, where is your name count when it is brought before the father by Jesus? Look, we're, we're coming to this table and this table is telling us some profound things about ourselves. This is a table that is actually interesting because we come to it every week, isn't it? This is a table of hopeful monotony. You know why you gotta come to this table every week? Because you and I forget the gospel every week. Because in the midst of searching for accomplishment and something new and for our name to be remembered, we forget that we need this. Because this body and blood, this is the one who holds our name, who carries our name to the Father. It's a table that reminds you that it is accomplished. What did Jesus say in his final words? Who's the only one that could actually say it and mean it? It is finished. There's accomplishment. Who's the one who came and with his body and blood, he sets a table for us to be made new. That's why we come every week, because he's gonna come again. Who's the one who remembers our name? The reason we can come to this table is the one who keeps our name, who bears our name by giving his body and blood. It is in Christ that we come to this. If you're here this morning and maybe all those things being nothing new and nothing accomplished and nothing remembered and it's just leaving you cynical and hopeless and kind of thinking, I don't know if Jesus is my answer or not. I would encourage you not to come forward and receive this table. I'd encourage you to either stay in your seat and really think about it, like contemplate about what the preacher is leading us to because what Ecclesiastes, the preacher, by the way, is not me. The preacher is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes and the one who's saying, we need to come to the end of ourselves in order for us to come forward and take this table. And if you're here this morning, and if you can do that, it's not about coming forward and making everything perfect or having it all down. It's saying you're brought to the end of yourself so you can receive. This is where you take that. This is the table for you. Let's stand together as we recite our liturgy.